Hello and welcome to a very special episode of the Historians Magazine podcast. I'm Chris Riley, one of the managing editors and ahead of Chelsea History Festival. We are joined by historian, author and journalist uh, Francesca Peacock. Francesca, it is wonderful to be speaking to you ahead of your appearance at Chelsea History Festival. How are you doing? Really well. Thank you so much for having me, Chris. It's very exciting to be talking to you. No problem at all. It's, uh, it's great to be chatting. So your talk at Chelsea History Festival is all about your new book, Pure Wit, which focuses on the life of the largely forgotten uh, Margaret Cavendish. Can you just give our listeners a quick intro into Margaret? You know, who is she? Uh, what's she all about? Yeah, of course. So Margaret Cavendish is a 17th century woman. She's the first Duchess of Newcastle. And she is one of England's first female authors, perhaps the first English female professional author, a very early female scientist, philosopher, poet, playwright, uh, and proto-novelist who writes the first work of science fiction called The Blazing World. And she's such a large figure in many ways for literary history and scientific history. And she has been largely forgotten, mostly because she was derided as mad during her own lifetime and then uh, for a couple of centuries afterwards. So Virginia Woolf called her a giant cucumber, amongst uh, many other deeply amusing insults, including a uh, bird-brained and all sorts of other things. Wow, yeah, giant cucumber. I've never really heard anybody. Yet. I might start using that. Yeah, um, it's uh, yeah, it's it's less offensive, but it's got uh, yeah, it's got bite to it. So, Margaret, I, I I can't lie. I haven't I haven't really heard much about her. Obviously, hence hence the topic of your book. But she sounds like someone we should know a lot about. Yeah, so that's kind of my. Um... But it's the reason I wrote the book. So uh, she died. She was born in 1623, died in 1673, which makes this her 400th anniversary. And it just struck me as incredibly sad that a lot of people hadn't heard of her. And um, I personally think she's quite important for, you know, the English literary canon for a lot of different reasons. And um, it seems a real shame that she's kind of been written out and forgotten. Um, and she writes work which which is brilliantly accessible now, but is also very much of its time. So she tells us a lot about the 17th century, which is obviously in England, a period very, very marked by war and revolution and extreme social upheaval, scientific upheaval, all of this stuff going on. And we can kind of use her life as a prism through which to see that uh, both as a royalist, as a scientist, as a writer, but also quite crucially as a woman, what was the 17th century like for women is uh, something I really uh, am very interested in and, and spent a lot of the research for the book exploring. Yeah, and uh, that's obviously super important. And, you know, I'm a medievalist at heart. So, you know, people like um, Margaret Beverly and, you know, Hildebar Hildegard of Bingen, you know, come to mind when you when you mention uh, when you mention Margaret. So, yeah, I think if you can ever get the kind of firsthand opinion of a, of a woman at any period of history up until about 20 years ago, it, it feels like, you know, a real golden golden egg, doesn't it? especially all of the resources you can find in archives. The 17th century is so, so rich for material, I think it's slightly easier than being a medievalist. So you have a ma major resource for like looking at her life. So uh, Margaret's born in 1623 to a family in Colchester in Essex, and they're wealthy, but they're not particularly aristocratic. And her life is kind of marked by the wars. So by the time she's in her late teens, her family house has been stormed by parliamentarian forces because her family's royalist. She goes into exile with Henrietta Maria as one of her ladies-in-waiting 
writing and then ends up in Paris after um, traveling to France with her. So her whole life is kind of marked by war. And we know that from the political context. But at the same time, we have an autobiography which, which describes the terror of, you know, knowing that all of your family are about to die or your brother is about to be executed in the most public execution of the whole civil wars and uh one of the most brilliant resources i was talking to someone else about recently actually is um she gets married while she's in exile in france to william cavendish who later becomes the first duke of newcastle and he is a royalist commander at the time he's the grandson of bess of hardwick uh so he chats with house very very wealthy aristocratic family and he's 30 years older than her. And their kind of love affair is, is quite a central part of the book. Um, it's something which really directs a lot of her life. And it's something which a lot of people have written about before with her. And part of my book is trying to, trying to re, reassess it in many ways, argue that she's more than just a wife to William. But, um, one of the greatest resources we have, which is still in the British Library, is, is all of the collections of her handwritten love letters that she wrote to him during the first couple of weeks of their courtship. Um, and they're not just about, you know, getting to know each other, the exchange of miniatures or telling each other how much they, they, they love each other. Also great resources where she writes at one point, you know, I look upon this whole world as if I'd taken over all of my hopes have gone I'm like drowned in melancholy and it's 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 really a great source for thinking about how how did uh, the civil wars affect people whose whole lives have been changed by them um so yeah really interesting to think about yeah it certainly sounds like it you know those, those personal letters are very visceral and you know you can you can really get to the the kind of meat and drink of a, of a relationship can't you whereas you know, anyone that studies history knows that quite a lot of the time it's, you know, this person did this at this point with this person and that was it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's kind of our jobs as historians and, you know, students of history to, to unpick. And it it's nice when um, when the, the kind of character as such kind of presents that um, immediately in, in, in personal letters. And it's nice that you mentioned Chatsworth as well. That's just down the road from me. Um, I didn't know that, again, this is another reason why uh, her story is clearly you know, it's something that we, we should be hearing about because it's, you know, she's she's everywhere, even up here in, in the in the north. I'm only, like I said, about 20 minutes away from, from Chatsworth. So it's nice to uh, hear it get mentioned, I guess. Yeah, so that's her husband's family who she marries into are that kind of like scion of the Cavendishes, an incredibly wealthy family. Uh, Bess of Hardwick builds Hardwick Hall as well. And so she kind of has that link to the Northeast. She also has a link to the Midlands and Nottinghamshire because of her husband's houses, Bolsover Castle and Welbeck Abbey. Um, and that's where they live after the restoration in these like incredibly grand houses, which had been utterly destroyed by the ravages of the Civil War. And much of her later life is 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 kind of preoccupied by building them back up. But prior to the Civil War, there'd been this kind of circle of intellectuals all around her husband at Welbeck. And um, she, he, he's kind of been a patron of the arts, which had definitely come through that family from the Chatsworth side as well. So really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, Bolsover Castle as well. That's not far from me. It's not often the uh, the North gets this much uh, this this much mention. It's nice. Um, so I don't want to dwell too much on on the topic of Margaret because a I want people to you know come to your talk at, at Chelsea and also you know buy your book. Um, but what made you want to write this specific book? Why is she and 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 women like her so you know? Why do we need books like this? It's, it sounds like a silly question that you've pretty much already answered but yeah what 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 drew you to her personally 
Yeah, so I think personally, I was very interested in a group of women who are working towards the end of the 17th century, actually, the very early 18th century. Uh, so kind of like Mary Astle, Mary Chudley and Anne Finch, who are a group of women who are uh, all writing kind of about female intellectual liberation, if that's not uh, too modern terms to use, but definitely thinking about women's minds expanding and education and all of that type of thing. And it's kind of a great moment for thinking about how, how women's education kind of really gets going in England and how we think about, you know, all of these types of things. And um, the more you think about it, the more you think actually uh, Margaret Cavendish got there first and then she kind of drops out of the historical record where she is remembered it's only normally for being slightly mad or she's always been called eccentric or all of the stories that we have uh, from of her from the centuries after her death are apocryphal they're made up we, there, there's no reason to think that she did half the things that people say she did um, and so I really wanted to draw attention to the woman behind kind of the myths and the legend who actually is, should be more of a canonical figure when we're talking about women's writing in English and women's writing in the 17th century and also just scientific writing in the 17th century. She makes a huge contribution towards really important scientific debates of the day. And I wanted to stop her just being seen as an eccentric figure and really give her her moment, not just uh kind of is like one figure amongst many but her moment in the spotlight again um so I, I feel quite passionately about about bringing her back and quite passionately about getting people to read her on her own terms rather than just in amongst what everyone else has said about her yeah it's the classic trope isn't it when a woman in history does anything she's instantly eccentric or weird or a witch or whatever word we want to use and it's it's very very seldom the case like, i can't speak for for everybody in history but it you know it's 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 disappointing but also you know once you scrape off that level level of kind of you know misogyny and just complete misunderstanding then there's usually a wonderful you know person and story behind it you know i'm anyone that knows me knows eleanor of aquitaine is is close to my heart and she's you know labeled as this um, you know, incredibly sexual she-wolf who he did all these terrible things. And realistically, she was at times just acting as a, as a man or, or or as just a person. And it was seen as seen as wrong because she was a woman, um, not because the acts themselves were. And it's clear that this happens, you know, not just in the 12th century through the all the way through to, to the modern day. So, yeah, I think it's a it's a it's a very you know, a valid topic, not to trivialize it too much, but it's, it's, it's necessary. And it's, it's always exciting because we have relatively few of these stories. So, you know, when you find one, you, you know, they're, they're always, they're always worth, uh, worth checking out. Um, so the next edition of the historians magazine is all about the history of film and, and TV. So I guess my question to you is what's your favorite historical film or TV show? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, I really loved The Favourite when I saw it uh, about Queen Anne last year, and I thought it was absolutely amazing. A kind of really, really moving depiction of both the relationship between Anne and Sarah Churchill and also Anne's pain at her infertility and numerous miscarriages. Um, I was actually doing research with Anne's letters in the British Library for my book, um, and found like there's just so much richness of detail in them at one point Anne is complaining saying that she has really horrible periods and she sends a letter and then Sarah writes back being like I'll send you a bar of chocolate in my carriage or something so there's just so much uh, brilliant detail there that the film really brings to life I think although I didn't think it had to do much to bring those letters to life I think the letters were 
almost cinematic <laughs> without being shot. But yeah, really gorgeous. Yeah, it's um, it, it is a good one. It is definitely a good one. I, I guess that leads on to my next question, which is about historical accuracy in TV and film. How important do you think it is? Do you think something can just be good and entertaining, or you know, do, is accuracy at the centre of what makes something good for you? Oh, I don't know. I suppose it's definitely to do with the purpose. Um, if it's educational, then I suppose the accuracy is absolutely paramount. But um, yeah, I'm thinking about like Bridgerton. There's not necessarily a lot of historical accuracy in there, but it's kind of got a historical flavour rather than being a historical drama, I suppose. Um, I think it's definitely a balance to be struck, which is probably such a boring anodyne answer. Um, but I think, I think, you know, we don't want to make things seem just dry for the sake of it. I mean, people are human throughout all of history. So, and we know so little from sources. Sometimes, as you we were saying earlier, sometimes you don't get much more than the basic facts you may be giving a bit of life uh, to history is not necessarily a bad thing but yeah yeah no i i agree a hundred percent i think you know one of my favorite films is a knight's tale which is you know at some parts quite accurate sometimes very inaccurate but i still think it makes for a very entertaining film and it also doesn't pretend to be a one-for-one perfect depiction of you know mid 14th century england and france you know that's as you said, would probably be very dry and appeal to about, you know, half a dozen people, myself included, but um, I don't think it would, um, I don't think it would please many people. But Braveheart, on the other hand, we can, I think, all agree is a pretty terrible film for just how inaccurate it is for, for, for no reason either. There's not even a bridge at Stamford, um, not Stamford Bridge, at Stirling Bridge, which uh, has always baffled me. Um, awesome. So, I guess the, the question I really wanted to ask, and it's what we've been asking um, people during this kind of mini series is if you could, you know, go to Netflix or the BBC or whoever it is and say, right, we're going to make a TV show or a film about this person or this period, who would it be? I mean, it might be the topic of this podcast, but it doesn't have to be. So I think I'd definitely love to make a film with Margaret Cavendish. I think she'd be absolutely great, played by like Helena Bonham Carter. Uh, maybe a Bill Myers, like a William Cavendish figure. I think it'd be really brilliant. And there's so much, you know, just absolute, the sheer amount of drama from the Civil Wars, I think is definitely super cinematic. But I think you're probably expecting me to say that because which author doesn't really want their subject to be the subject of a film. The other person I was thinking would be a very great film. There's a brilliant novel of her life as well as Marjorie Kemp, um, The Medieval Mystic. I just think there's a, a lot to be done, a lot to be done there. Yes, I will back you in that pitch for Marjorie Kemp all day. Um, again, another quote-unquote eccentric woman who, you know, absolutely deserves some more spotlight. Yeah, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't agree more. And I definitely think like a, a Tim Burton kind of English Civil War film would be, would be great. That's, yeah. That's yeah. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm thinking of the cast now and I think, yeah, it would be, um, it would be great. Would be great. So speaking of hypothetical situations you know we've already mentioned that you're speaking at chelsea history festival very soon if you could co-host a talk at chelsea history festival with anyone from history uh, or a fellow historian who would it be and and why 
Oh, it's such a good question. I actually know that Anna Colgan Martin is going to be speaking at Chelsea History Festival about her book about Messalina, who is uh, the kind of ancient empress who's mostly known for being a whore. And I think we could have a really interesting discussion about how history treats women and often pigeonholes them, or uh, how historical sources you have to read between the lines to kind of work out what's going on, especially with women's lives. Uh, so I had thought about how much fun that would be. Yeah, I mean, again, it's it sounds great. It sounds like I would definitely be be at that one because, yeah, I agree. I think we we do tend to, you know, like you said, pigeonhole women and put them into these very obvious and defined roles of, you know, motherhood, wifehood, whore, as you say, or whatever it is. It's you know, you're this or that you're that. You can't be anything other than the things we've described. So yeah, to to hear two historical perspectives at the same time, I, th- I think would be I think would be great. So thank you so much, Francesca. That was a really, really great chat about your new book, your talk at Chelsea History Festival. If people want to go and hear you speak, how can people kind of get tickets for Chelsea History Festival? Yeah, so they're all online. Uh, they're all on uh, the link tree in my Twitter bio um, and then also on the Chelsea History Festival website. And then if people can't come to Chelsea, I'm actually doing a book tour of the Northeast in two weeks. Uh, so we're going to Corbridge in Northumberland and then Durham and for a book signing at Newcastle and then down to Stockton on Tees. So I will be all around there for a bit and also in Oxford and in Bath. So. Awesome. It sounds like you've got a busy uh, a busy few weeks coming on. Yeah, very busy, but it should be fun. Yeah, sounds it. So now you've got the floor for as little or as long as you would like to share any, you've kind of already done it anyway, but share any upcoming, uh, you know, any dates you've got planned in, any work you've got, including obviously your book, Pure Wit. Um, feel free to share your social handles as well. So if people want to find more of your work, where's the best place to find you? Yeah, um, where is a good place? Um, so yeah, obviously doing the tour and then we'll be talking um, a couple of different festivals, Chelsea History Festival and talking at Bath at the end of October. And then the best place to find me is probably on Twitter where I am, hang on, what am I? I don't really know, uh, at Cheska underscore Peacock. Um, so yeah. Awesome, thank you. And everybody make sure you go and follow Francesca. And if you can't get to... I uh, can't get to a talk, then I'm sure you'll you'll find lots on, on Twitter and social media where we all have to uh, kind of make our secondary living these days. Um, thank you again so much for chatting with us today. Uh, and thanks to everyone for listening to the Historians Magazine podcast. Once again, Francesca's talk will be on the 1st of October at Chelsea History Festival in the Chelsea Physic Garden Gallery at 2pm. Uh, there are some t- tickets still available. Um Chelsea History Festival aims to bring light to some of the most intriguing legends, historical events and architectural gems of the Chelsea Heritage Quarter. And I think we can all agree that Francesca's book and the topic of Francesca's book is definitely historical gem. You can find out loads more at chelseahistoryfestival.com. Thanks again.